0: So God grants the request, okay? Um, uh, their request for the king here is, is given in the earlier uh, in, in uh, verses 19 and 20 then. but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So God says, give them what they ask for. And uh, the first king, then, that is appointed is Saul, Saul, okay? Uh, You notice in chapter 9, verse 1, that he is a Benjaminite, okay, Benjaminite. And uh, if you remember, at the end of the book of Judges, that uh, the tribe of Benjamin was almost annihilated, that there were only 600 fighting men from the tribe of Benjamin that survived so uh, he is of the tribe of Benjamin, Uh, that also already tells you that this is going to probably be, uh, even without knowing the rest of the story, an abortive uh, kingship that Saul will have. Um, The reason is because the prophecy of Jacob back in Genesis 49 was that the Kingship would come through which line, which tribe Judah, Judah. And so here you have one from Benjamin, uh, Saul is from Benjamin, uh, but he is anointed then as the king um, by Samuel, and uh, he was actually i mean he's head and shoulders above everybody else tall um, you know very um, um, uh, tall in stature and and tall, dark, and handsome, um, uh, but also somewhat reluctant to take on this role, kind of humble, aw shucks kind of farm boy, who am I to to take this role But he is anointed, okay? Uh, Then he is publicly recognized and identified as the new king by Lot, and that's described then in chapter 10. So you have the more private anointing and the public identification, and in this public identification, again, they have to go looking for him. He's kind of hiding in the baggage, uh, uh, not really real (laughs) eager to take this position. But then his uh, rule is really confirmed through a victory over the Ammonites, Um, uh, an invasion and attack of the Ammonites, and that's in chapter 11. And this takes place up uh, south of the Sea of Galilee in the Transjordan, the east side of the Jordan River here. If you remember that the, what, was, what remained of the tribe of Benjamin was essentially moved up here to this area around Jabesh Gilead. And so it is primarily now the Benjaminites um, who are being attacked by these Ammonites um, from, from uh, across, in, farther out in the Transjordan area. Uh, Saul, who's out plowing the back 40, so tells you something about, uh, you know, his understanding of being a king here. He, he just kind of wants to be a farmer. He's out plowing, and he gets word uh, that Jabesh Gilead has been attacked by the Ammonites. And he is able to rally all of the tribes. So it shows that they are recognizing him as the king, uh, not just a, you know, of a tribal locality, but of all the tribes together. He's able to rally all of the tribes to come together to defend the people of Jabesh Gilead. And there's a great victory there. And so this is much more of the dynamic confirmation of Saul as the, the new king, the monarch, okay? So, any questions about uh, the story, the history thus far, or comments? Okay, the second part of First Kings, which describes here the first king, Saul, Describes his demise, though. It isn't long. Again, as I said, it's kind of an abortive monarchy that he has. And uh, it's a bit of a flash in the pan. It certainly isn't permanent. And so there is a demise. And uh, the demise for Saul is that he fails to obey the Lord. And if you would go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, where Moses uh, prescribes the office of king, Uh, the primary role of the king was to be the steward of the king, Yahweh, to be the vice-regent, the vice-president, if you will, to do the bidding of the Lord. And so he was to be very, very up on the law, the Torah, to know the, uh, the Lord's will. The problem with Saul here is that in several cases, he goes against the will of the Lord and goes against the law of God. And so he, in a sense, abdicates his uh, privilege as the king. Uh, How does this happen? Well, uh, in one case, uh, there's another need for battle. He wants to lead the forces in battle. And uh, um, to do so, recognizing Yahweh is the warrior, the the Lord of Hosts here. Uh, They they seek Yahweh's blessing and presence before they would go forth in battle. And that means sacrifice has to be offered up. And uh, Saul has summoned the forces and he summoned Samuel to come to to carry out the sacrifice before they can engage in battle. And uh, The forces arrive, all the men are ready to to move forward, but Samuel isn't there, Samuel tarries. And so they're just kind of sitting around, you know, tapping their fingers. Mm -hmm. One, two, three, four days go by, five, six, seven, and uh, the... Military personnel here are becoming impatient, and some of them are starting to disperse. They're starting to go away, starting to head back. Uh, Nothing's going to happen here. And so um, Saul goes ahead and takes the initiative. He says, Samuel must not be coming. We need to move ahead. I'm going to offer up the sacrifices. So he personally offers up these sacrifices. Now, how is that going against the law of the Lord? He's not a prophet or priest. He's okay. He's not, priest. he's not of the tribe of Levi okay, or of the line of Aaron. Okay, Remember, this is post-Sinai, and only the priests offer up sacrifice. He's a Benjaminite, and so he's disobeyed the will, the law of the Lord there. And so it's like immediately after he does that, Samuel shows up. He says, what have you done? (laughs) And Saul tries to make excuses, but Samuel says, this is a grave offense to the Lord. Okay, Uh, another very significant incident then is described in chapter 15, where Saul has led in battle and he's been successful. The Lord has granted him victory over the enemy. Uh, And remember uh, the law of devotion, harem, we discussed yesterday with the the, uh, Joshua conquest that you are to eliminate, eradicate all the enemies, destroy the plunder that's devoted to the Lord. Well, Saul... Uh, doesn't do that. He spares the king, doesn't kill the king, thinks he may come in handy later on. And uh, the uh, booty here, the plunder, he he pretty much keeps lots of flocks of, of animals. And again, Samuel shows up and says, what is this bleeding that I hear ringing in my ears? Why are all these animals still alive? They were to be devoted to the Lord. They were to be um, killed, and then he finds out the king is still alive. And uh, um, Samuel, or uh, I'm sorry, Saul gives kind of an excuse again. He says, "Well, I was going to sacrifice these animals to the Lord." <laughs> you know, so he tries to cover up. Say, I'm going to sacrifice these animals to the Lord. And uh, Samuel then responds with this very memorable rebuke. To obey is better than sacrifice. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And at this point then, uh, Saul is remorseful and he kind of grabs a hold of Samuel. And, and it's kind of like, oh, you know, spare me here this. And he actually tears some of Samuel's robe. And Samuel uses that as an object lesson, saying, just as you have torn this from me, so the Lord will tear the kingdom from you. You're going to lose the kingdom. But his loss of the kingdom doesn't then just happen immediately. Okay, there's quite a process to that. Okay, there's this more of the uh, wood cut of the um, a rebuke of Saul. Okay, so Saul continues to function as the king. He's the de facto king, but Samuel now is looking for another king. Under the Lord's guidance, someone who is a man after God's own heart, who will be submissive and obedient to the Lord and that person is of course David then Uh, there is a private anointing by Samuel that's described in chapter 16 Uh, Samuel goes to Bethlehem as the Lord directs him to the house of Jesse because the Lord has said the one you are to anoint is a son of Jesse Samuel arrives uh, arrives, offers up the sacrifice and uh, uh, says, Jesse, bring your sons here. I'm going to anoint one of them as the king. Uh, Jesse does so, and he brings them kind of the eldest, assuming it will certainly be the eldest. And uh, as they're kind of lining up, the Lord says to Samuel, uh, recognize that I look at the heart. Humans look at the outward appearances. I'm looking at the heart. He's looking for that man after his own heart. And so uh, Saul sees the the eldest brother and he thinks, that's got to be the guy. This guy, again, tall, dark, handsome, strong, muscular, he, he fits the bill. But the Lord says, nope, not that guy. Okay, who's the next? Next in line, next in line. And each time the Lord says, That's not the one. And they go through all seven brothers. And the Lord says, nope, none of those. (laughs) And uh, Samuel's going, well, what's up? He turns to Jesse. Is this all the sons that you have? And Jesse replies, well, actually not. My youngest, though, I didn't think you'd really be interested in him. He's a shepherd boy. He's out tending the flocks. He's just a, he's still young. Samuel says, Fet, Fetch him. And so Sam, uh, David is brought, and immediately the Lord says, He's the one. He's the one. And so Samuel anoints him to be the king. And he is of the line of Judah. Okay, this is in the territory of Judah, Bethlehem. Uh, uh, will you be small amongst the cities of Judah okay. out of Bethlehem now arises this king and ultimately the greatest king the, the, the son of David Jesus Christ okay uh, so there's that private anointing by Samuel so we've had the, these anointings by Samuel of two Saul earlier in a private anointing and now David in a private anointing and uh, uh, but David just goes on serving as a shepherd boy okay and everything nothing really seems to have changed but there is this ongoing conflict with the Philistines and the Philistines now have uh, quite a lethal weapon in the name of Goliath this champion of their army nine feet tall, okay, that's huge for our standards today. But in the ancient world, you rarely even got over five feet, so maybe about four and a half feet. So this guy is twice as tall as anybody else. Um, This guy is uh, a mammoth, okay? And and so he is this, this kind of heroic champion figure. And he taunts the Israelites. Uh, saying, send out a man, send out your best, and we'll have a one-on-one with one another. And if your best defeats me, then the Philistines will serve you. But if I beat your best, then you'll serve us. You'll be our servants. Okay? And nobody from the Israelite camp is willing to go. Uh, David's brothers are a part of that camp. And Jesse has sent David to take some provisions to uh, Jesse's sons. And uh, David then, this youngster, not even of uh, um, conscription age for, for battle, he overhears this. He, he hears what's going on and he, he hears the taunts of Goliath and that Goliath would so blaspheme the God of Israel. He's amazed. Isn't anyone going to take up this guy? Okay, uh, Why are you afraid? We've got the God of Jacob with us, the Lord of hosts. Okay. Uh, so he says, well, I'll do it. And so he goes to Saul and uh, says, I'll, I'll be the one to go and fight. And Saul says, okay, well, you need the proper armor. You can use my armor. And uh, Saul puts the armor on David and it kind of like just the breastplate goes almost down to his ankles, you know, and he's just kind of rattling around. It's, it's too big for him and, and he's not used to this. He's a shepherd boy. He says, no, I don't need this. You know, I've got the Lord. That's all that I need. And so uh, he goes out into the battlefield and uh, you know the story, okay? Okay. Uh, He comes and he, in a sense, invokes the covenant promise of God that God will fight for his people who are faithful and trust him. And he says to Goliath, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord who leads the armies, whom you have defied, for the battle now is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So David recognizes it's not going to be through me, but it's the Lord's, and so the Lord can use anyone, even a youngster like myself. And of course, then he gathers the five smooth stones by the riverbank and uh, takes the first one, lets it fly from his slingshot. Plants right in the forehead of Goliath like a third eye, and he falls over. And David just goes right up to him, pulls Goliath's own sword, and severs the giant's head. And it's a great victory, a great battle. That is won. Israel now is delivered uh, from uh, this Philistine oppression. David becomes a national hero, and... uh, Uh, All the teenage girls in Israel now are putting up posters of David in their bedrooms and uh, everybody's acclaiming him. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And now he's the hero. One of the prizes that Saul had offered to anyone who would fight and defeat Goliath was the hand of his own daughter, Saul's own daughter, call Okay, and um, Saul already is sensing the threat that David is. So he says, well, yeah, you can have my daughter, but there is one more condition. Uh, you have to present to me as a uh, dowry price, one hundred. dollars Foreskins from Philistines. Okay. Well, obviously Philistines aren't just going to line up and let David, you know, cut away with uh, to get their foreskins. So it's in a sense you've got to kill 100 Philistines. And Saul is again thinking he's not going to make it. This is a way to get rid of him. But David uh, prevails and uh, brings the bridal price. And so he's married to Michal. Okay. Saul eventually becomes very, very jealous. And there's a paranoia that comes in over him. There's, uh, you can almost see mental sickness, but certainly spiritual sickness uh, in this paranoia. Uh, already Samuel has told him uh, the kingdom's going to be tore away from you and given to another and uh, here it's becoming clear to everyone who that other will be, and especially to Saul, uh, that it's David. Um, however, initially, David is brought into the uh, royal uh, complex here and serves in the courtyard. He plays his uh, harp, the stringed instrument, lyre, for Saul. And uh, uh, that soothes some of Saul's uh, mental torment, his mental illness, his spiritual illness. Uh, we're told at this time that the spirit of the Lord has left Saul and uh, that an evil spirit, demonic spirit, has, has come to oppress him. And uh, so also at this time, David becomes close friends, dear friend to Jonathan and Jonathan to David. Jonathan is the firstborn of Saul. So he should be the successor to the kingship uh, in the dynastic rule. Uh, but even Jonathan is recognizing what the Lord's will. And uh, Jonathan is a very noble figure in this, uh, that he 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 is willing to submit to the Lord's will, recognizing David will be the next king, and uh, supporting David through that, not clamoring for his own personal ambition. Okay? He even gives David his own sword as a a gift of loyalty and uh, friendship. Uh, But finally, Saul breaks, if you will. And while David is playing the lyre in his presence, Saul takes a spear and throws it and just misses David. David now knows he's got to run for his life. Uh, He flees with the assistance of Michal, his wife, um, uh, who lets him down so that he can escape the palace. Uh, He meets out in the woods with uh, Jonathan and uh, they pledge their undying um, friendship and love to one another, um, even though now they must obviously part ways. Okay? Um, David then is... Pursued. He is a refugee. He's a man on the run. And he's pursued by Saul. Saul's palace is here in Gibeah. Right there. Not far from where Jerusalem is. Okay. Just north of Jerusalem. David flees. And he flees to the south and to the east to Nob. And uh, again, he's a fugitive. But he's taken in by. Uh, A priest who is attending to the tabernacle there. Okay? Uh, Remember, the ark is here in Kiriath Jearim, but the tabernacle has been moved down to Nob. And the ark isn't in the tabernacle. Why it isn't, I don't know. But they're still carrying out their priestly activities. And you remember there's the table of showbread, table of the the twelve pita breads <laughs> representing the presence of Israel in the holy place. Uh, David is famished and the priest there says, we don't have anything but this, this sacred bread. And David says, give it to me. <laughs> I, I need it. I'm, I'm on the lamb here. And, and uh, the priest obliges that. Okay. Um, There was nothing really that violated the law of Moses in that as long as the priest provided it to David. The priests themselves would would eat this. But but Jesus picks this up later on in the Gospels where uh, the Pharisees are so upset that he and his disciples were eating on the Sabbath day. Remember, harvesting grain and picking the, the grain while they go through the grain fields. And they say, why do you do this? Why do you break the law of God? And David said, well, look back to uh, King David, what he did. You know, he, was, he ate the sacred loaves, and, uh, and yet he was the Lord's anointed. The point is, I'm the Lord's anointed, and uh, um, I, I am Lord over the Sabbath itself here. So he makes reference to that point. Uh, but then uh, Saul is out with his posse. To, to catch David and in this episode it's like David is just always one step ahead of Saul. Uh, just, there's so many close call, calls where David could have been caught by Saul and he, he gets away from uh, Saul and the tabernacle but Saul comes and his forces slaughter the priests of Nob. So it's again just showing how extreme uh, he will go, and kind of his, his. Uh, I mean, he's just a ravaging uh, maniac here, uh, tyrant. Okay, uh, so David then flees down into the wilderness of Judea. He becomes um, a, a fugitive down there, and he gathers around himself, a, a a band of uh, of kind of other fugitives, those who had been in debt and so forth, um, who become his like Robin Hood and the um, and the Merry Band there. So uh, uh, this is uh, his um, group uh, of his gang, about 600 men. They're outlaws. Uh, kind of like Jesse James on the run, uh, but in the wilderness here in the um, uh, desert of En-Gedi, uh... he's hiding away in these strongholds and so forth, okay uh eventually, he will <laughs> take refuge in gath, okay well actually early on, and then go back uh, so He's in such desperate straits that he has to take refuge among the Philistines. And the king of Gath, um, Ekron, takes him in. Um, David has to feign insanity. So he's slobbering. Spittle is dripping from his beard. And he's like scratching the walls and stuff like that. Acting like he's insane so that uh, uh, the Philistines don't think that he's a threat because he's gone to the very hometown of Goliath. (laughs) And uh, this is the only way that he's able to survive. So just kind of like Joseph we saw earlier, and like Moses, Joseph put in prison, Moses who had to go into the wilderness for 40 years, and now David, God brings his leaders low so that they learn dependence upon him and humility before him before he raises them up. So David's in about the lowest spot you can get. Okay, uh, During this time then uh, he has a couple of opportunities while Saul and uh, his raiders are out seeking to destroy him to actually kill Saul. While Saul is sleeping his guards uh, fail to watch over him and David had the opportunity to kill him. David's companion here is Joab. Joab, Someone else you need to know. He becomes his general, five-star general, later on in his kingdom. But even this early time, Joab is there, and Joab would like to run Saul through, but David says, no, touch not the Lord's anointed. Saul is still the king. He's still anointed of the Lord. If Saul is to be taken out, God will see that that will be done. I'm not going to take that into my own hands. Uh, So he entrusts to the Lord uh, the destiny of Saul. Uh, But he he actually, uh, in this incident, does cut from the hem of Saul part of his robe and then gets to a safe distance and holds up that piece of fabric that had been cut off, and says, Saul, look. Um, you could have been killed. I could have killed you. Uh, so he shows that intention. David eventually then also gains a, a wife, uh, Abigail. A nice little story behind that. but, but uh, So now he has Michal, who's back at the palace. Obvious, obviously, he's separated from her. But he has another wife, Abigail. Okay, so uh, what we have now is um, um, his flight from Saul, refuge in the wilderness, and Philistia. And and then the latter part of 1 Samuel has the death of Saul and his sons, including Jonathan, at Gilboa. Death of Saul and his sons at Gilboa. Uh, What happens here is that you have the Philistines once again who invade and are trying to take this area up to the southwest of the Sea of Galilee okay and uh, there's a great battle that takes place here at Mount Gilboa Uh, Saul and his forces then are there to defend the Israelite territory against the Philistines so it's in this region that we're talking here and um, while he's up there Saul is seeking guidance from the Lord. Yahweh, what should I do? Give me guidance. Give me a sign here. Tell me what to do. But remember, the spirit of the Lord has departed from him, so the Lord is silent. He's silent to Saul. Uh, Saul earlier, to his credit, had expunged the land of all of its witches and warlocks and sorcerers and so forth and mediums just as the law of Moses had said. Okay? But now he's so desperate, he says, find me a medium. Find me a witch. If I, I've got to get some word from the supernatural in terms of which way I should go, some direction. Uh, maybe she'll be able to connect me uh, with, with someone who can help me. And so uh, they find out that there's still a witch up in Endor, the witch of Endor, And so he goes to her and asks her to conjure up, of all people, Samuel. (laughs) And uh, lo and behold, Samuel appears. Now, this does not mean that God here condones seances and mediums and conjuring up dead spirits and so forth. But what we see is that God can use; He can kind of bypass even that which is evil. Okay, so um, um, we we saw that earlier. I'm trying to think now. I remembered, but uh, yeah, Balak and Balaam, Balaam, Uh, Balaam, that sorcerer from Mesopotamia. Uh, who the Lord used to speak blessings upon Israel and curses upon the enemies of Israel from the mouth of this uh, sorcerer. So God can do whatever he wants. And in this case, uh, Samuel appears, <laughs> and uh, the witch is surprised herself. <laughs> she wasn't expecting this to really happen. And then she knows, oh, you're Saul. And she fears for her life because Saul's the one who's been getting rid of all the witches and warlocks and such. Uh, But Samuel essentially says to Saul, you already know what's going to happen. I told you that. I told you what the Lord's will is that the kingdom be wrestled, wrested from you. Um, So that's what the case will be here. And uh, then at the Battle of Gilboa, uh, the Philistines succeed. Saul's sons are killed, including Jonathan. And Saul himself is injured by an arrow and takes his own life, commits suicide, um, falls on his own sword, and dies. And uh, so that's essentially the end of 1 Samuel, okay, taking place up here. Uh, the Philistines treat very badly the bodies of Saul and his sons, the princes, including Jonathan. Uh, their heads are cut off. Their bodies are hung up um, in Shan, And the men of Jabesh-Gilead, remember the Benjaminites from his tribe who had originally been delivered at the very start when Saul became king from the Ammonites, they come and bravely rescue the body, and so his body and the bodies of Jonathan and the two other brothers are given a solemn burial. Okay, so um, that's the narrative here of 1 Samuel. Any questions or comments about so that So Miko is Jonathan's sister, or did Saul have multiple wives? That's a good question. I don't know for sure. I'm assuming it's Jonathan's sister. Okay. I did not know, know, know who's director. There's right. Right, right. It's certainly not uncommon, as we've seen here, for them to have multiple wives. That, um, my assumption is that she is not just a half-sister of okay. Jonathan, a full sister. I thought it was kind of a little surprising how little I mean, I think talking about that too. How how little it says about Sam that um, it's kind of just as an afterthought, a setup to the fact that um, Saul tries to call him up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's described, it's just kind of a oh oh yes. By this time, Sam will died. <laughs> died. <laughs> <So, laughs> we are just looking at when did Sam die. Uh, I'm not sure. I remember passage that kind of mm-hmm. says, "Oh yeah, he, you know, by this time he had died." But, um, yeah, it's the same chapter um, in which Saul goes to the woman living in the end. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, now same chapter twenty-five. Okay. Yeah. And but he had earlier given kind of his farewell. I don't remember which chapter that is. That's uh, almost a whole chapter. Uh, Yeah, chapter 12, uh, because now he recognizes that Saul will take over the rulership. The new king will take over the rulership. So he gives a farewell speech and really reaffirms the covenant at that time. So um, he kind of fades from the scene from there, other than coming back to rebuke Saul, (laughs) whether alive or dead. (laughs) So Okay. Any others? Okay, well, we'll uh, then continue here for another 15 minutes and then take a break. Let's move on to uh, David. David, his reign is described in Second Samuel. So if you think of uh, the turn here now into Second Samuel. And you can see the years of his reign, and it's very convenient that he begins his reign in 1000 BC, so that's easy to remember. Uh, some of the most significant events in Old Testament history are roughly about 500 years apart, er, yeah. So you've got the year 2000, that's Abraham, roughly about 1500, is the Exodus, 1,000 then is David, and then roughly 500 will be the return from exile, back into the land. So it's kind of nice to uh, keep in in terms of this framework of 500 years, uh, much of the chronology of the Old Testament. He reigns for 40 years, as you can see here. And um, at the beginning of 2 Samuel here, the Israelite territory is, de- is depicted here on this map um, in the two colors, the red and the purple. Okay, So this is the occupied territory of the Israelites. By the time David, his reign is complete, it will take up this whole territory. So you see that he'll expand the territory very significantly. Um, David does not assume kingship, the monarchy, of the entire territory possessed by the Israelites immediately upon the death of Saul. Okay. It's not for another seven years that David will, in fact, be king of all of this territory. At first, he is king just of the southern part, the tribe of Judah. Its capital at this time is Hebron, and he is anointed as king there, or I shouldn't say it, uh, is recognized as king there. Um, one of Saul's other sons, Ish-bosheth, becomes the king to the north. So the northern tribes here are not recognizing David as the king. Uh, They're still recognizing a son of Saul as the king. So already, you're seeing this kind of identification of the south south and the north and the loyalties uh, that are kind of partisan that will appear again in the divided kingdom. Okay. So uh, David then is acclaimed king in Hebron. Okay, he is anointed as king and crowned king there. Um, but eventually, uh, through all kinds of intrigue and uh, betrayal and so forth, Ish- Ishbosheth is killed. <coughs> Saul's general, okay, David's general had been Joab. Saul's general's name was Abner. And um, Abner then becomes c- kind of the right hand man to Ishbosheth, who is the king of the northern territory. Uh, but he eventually betrays Ish- Ishbosheth, and in fact, Joab. Takes out Abner. So uh, not only do you have the rival to the throne, Ishbosheth, rival to David, I should say, uh, taken out, but his right hand man, Abner, is taken out. And you can read all the <coughs> gory details about that on your own. Okay? David now becomes the ruler of all of this territory. Okay? It's a united kingdom once again. And He uses great wisdom in locating the capital of the entire kingdom in Jerusalem. Why is that? Well, you notice, first of all, Jerusalem is about right on the border between the two. So he's kind of like dividing up loyalty, making making it right on the border here. Another point is that he takes a stronghold that wasn't even Israelite. Jerusalem was occupied by the Jebusites and it was a great stronghold and the Israelites were not able to wrest it from them or or didn't uh, trust the Lord enough to wrest it from the Jebusites. David does. David takes it. And he claims this as his own city. And so Jerusalem will now be called the city of David to this very day if you go to Jerusalem you'll see it's referred to as the city of David it's kind of his own personal city so it's not designated to any certain tribe a parallel to this would be our district of Columbia okay Washington DC it's, its own entity it's not a part of any of the 50 states it's its own entity So Jerusalem was that as well. Okay, so that becomes the new capital. And David is also brilliant in bringing the Ark of the Covenant to this uh, capital. Okay, the Ark had been in kiriath Jearim, in the um, um, farmhouse of Abadab. And uh, so he fetches this, and it's a politically brilliant move. Because the Ark of the Covenant had been the central focus politically of the tribal confederacy. But it's also a a very faithful, spiritual, religious move in that he is recognizing that Yahweh is the true king. It's a confession of faith saying Yahweh is the real king. We need to bring his throne to the capital city. And so David now will reflect what Moses had originally prescribed as the role of the king, to be the vice-regent to the true king, Yahweh. He humbles himself, submits himself to the will of the Lord. And the Lord is brought then to the kingdom. Okay, and there's an interesting uh, account to the bringing of the Ark uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, But eventually it arrives there. David leads the procession, singing, singing songs. Lift up your heads, you mighty gates, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. Uh, So uh, singing that song, psalm. Uh, He also uh, just is in such joy that uh, he starts stripping off clothes (laughs) and dancing around. And... uh, Eventually, he's just in his skibbies. And Michal, his wife, observes this, and she says, oh, that is just so beneath you. That's so undignified of the king to do that. And she despises him. And so he says, hey, I'm worshiping the Lord here. You know, uh, it's to his glory, and he received my, my worship that way. I'm not, I don't care about um, etiquette. And, and appearances here as long as i 'm worshiping the Lord, so from that time on, there is estrangement between David and McCall okay and uh, Michal, uh has no no children, uh, which says to us that David and McCall are kind of well he 's keeping his distance from her okay so um Another thing that is characteristic of David's reign then is also the conquest of the land. So he expands the territory of Israel beyond what it had ever been before and would ever be again. So this is the golden age of Israelite history. Uh, All of his military campaigns. Uh, He is the one who now, once and for all, puts the Philistines at bay. You don't hear anything more about the Philistines being a problem to the Israelites after David, okay? Uh, Also to the north, the Syrians, and then all of these ites down here, uh, Edomites, Ammonites, Moabites, Amalekites, uh, he subdues and uh, makes them subject to him. So this is now the border of of, um, Israel under David's reign. The Philistines still have some sovereignty, but they're, they're, they're just kind of a, a benign presence from here on out. And then up here along the coast, this is Philistia. I'm, I'm sorry, Phoenicia. Correction, Phoenicia. And uh, David will be in alliance with Phoenicia, especially with uh, Hiram. the king of Tyre uh, for trade and uh, for the uh, expertise of the Phoenician craftsmen who build David's palace. So a big palace is built uh, by the Phoenicians, the Phoenician craftsmen here. Okay, so it's a glorious time of of Israelite history, uh, something that you will need to note for the uh, competency exam, uh, one of the questions, uh, multi choice, has to do with David's uh, conquests, and he never lost one. Okay? So he never loses any of his campaigns. This shows the Lord's presence and blessing upon him. Never loses a campaign. So now you have this, this rule from Jerusalem, the Star of David. Even to this day, the sign of, of uh, the state of Israel, the star of David there um, at Jerusalem. He is the king. The Ark of the Covenant uh, is there, so Yahweh is the true king, and it's a glorious time. Uh, another significant uh, development during David's reign is the dynasty, the Davidic dynasty. And this uh, uh, takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where you read about this. And there is a prophet by the name of Nathan who is in a sense David's advisor and David seeks the will of the Lord through Nathan. And... uh, uh, David says to Nathan, go inform the Lord that I would like to build him a house. The Lord right now is in a tent. Okay? The ark had been brought to Jerusalem. The tabernacle had been brought to Jerusalem. Now finally the two had been reconnected. The, the ark housed in the tabernacle in the tent. And David says, here I am in this Posh, building the palace, and the Lord's in a tent. The true king's in a tent. I want to build him a palace. I want to build him a house. I want to build him a permanent temple. And uh, so Nathan takes that word to the Lord. Nathan initially says, "I think that's a great idea. Uh, You you are really on target there, David." But he takes it to the Lord, and the Lord said, "Well, no, that's not my plan." Okay, not for the time being. But because of David's heart and the intention of his heart, go back and tell him this. David, you will not build me a house, but I will build you a house. Okay? And the house he's referring to is a dynasty. A dynasty. Okay, so we talk about like the house of Habsburg the Habsburg dynasty of the uh, Austrian-Hungarian Empire. So house means dynasty here. I'll build you a a house. It's a play on words, dynasty. And it will be an eternal house, an eternal dynasty. That is, um, your descendant will always be upon the throne of Israel of of, of god 's chosen people, your descendant, your dynasty will not be broken; it will always be on that throne, and as long as there is a throne, your descendant will be on it okay now, later on, with the exile, okay Jerusalem will be destroyed, the palace will be destroyed, uh, there will be no throne, there will be no king of Judah, but the line of David will continue on until it finds its final, ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This is why the genealogies in the opening chapters of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke emphasize the Davidic ancestry of Jesus. Because it's from that line now that the ultimate, eternal ruler will come. And so here you have God's covenant. This is called the Davidic covenant, covenant with David, a unilateral covenant of divine commitment to David that the dynasty, the lineage will come from him and, and will not be broken, uh, ultimately fulfilled as the prophets will make very clear in the coming of the Messiah, who will be of the line of David. Okay. Uh, but not everything is wonderful and peaches and cream with David's empire here and his reign. Uh, so we'll pick that up though after the break. So let's take.